Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website. And we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. As the coronavirus sweeps across the globe, it's causing businesses, governments and consumers to rethink their globalised lives. I speak to Kate Andrews and Gideon Rachman about whether or not the coronavirus is the death knell for globalisation. And in the midst of talk of a global pandemic, it's easy to forget that we have a budget coming up next week. So how will the coronavirus impact what that budget looks like? And at the very end, we ask, is it much harder to be eco-friendly if you're a woman? First up, the world has been enjoying the benefits of globalisation, with millions pulled out of poverty because of it, including my family and myself as Chinese immigrants. But what the coronavirus exposes is the incredible interdependency we have on each other. The disease has travelled across the world in a matter of weeks, and businesses are struggling, especially those with international just-in-time supply chains. So has globalisation had its day? Kate Andrews asks the question in this week's cover piece, and she joins me now, together with FT columnist Gideon Rachman. So Kate, can you tell us about your argument? So long before the coronavirus moved into other parts of the world, when it was specifically in certain provinces in China, we already saw the impact that that was going to have globally. As factories in China weren't producing the goods that they would normally produce, as workers couldn't get to work, uh, we were starting to see supply chains seriously strained, which was affecting all different parts of the world. I mean, we can simply look to Europe, you know, whether it be the tech industry, the pharmaceutical industry, they weren't able to get the goods they needed. And now that it's spreading, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that while there's, you know, obviously a very high human cost to the impact of coronavirus from the public health perspective, there's also a big cost in terms of the economics. And many businesses and countries were already aware of this before the coronavirus came along. Companies have been trying to diversify out of China, but it's proving difficult because they've invested so much in the region. So I think you could argue that, well, the strains were already there. Coronavirus has sped things up, so to speak. It's definitely not to say that this is the end of globalization, far from it. But people are much more aware now and I think skeptical of the amount of outsourcing that we're doing on other sides of the world where you can't always control production. Gideon, Kate points a really interesting factor in all of this in her piece, which is just the political side of things. And it does seem like if you look at developments over the world in the last two decades or so, that borders and barriers are back. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there there are people, political scientists who keep count of these things. And actually, you know, physical barriers, borders are coming back. So I suppose the iconic event of the globalization era, if you like, was ripping down a wall, ripping down the Berlin Wall. And then the moment when uh, it really hit home in the US that things had changed was when Trump is elected. And what is his slogan? Build the wall. It's it's not just a metaphor, it's the actual physical barriers. And again, aside from the coronavirus, what else else is going on in Europe at the moment? You've got the Greek border under enormous pressure from Turkish refugees. And Europe's reaction now is very different from what it was in 2015, when 
Then Viktor Orban was regarded as a kind of barbarian outlier, certainly by the Germans, who famously let in a million people. Now, the Germans are not going to repeat that, clearly. You know, In fact, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who's head of the European Commission but just left the German government, said, you know, Greece is the frontier of Europe. Mm-hmm. And yet the Greeks are behaving pretty brutally. They've been shooting in the water at uh, dinghies. So you can just see that the, the mood has really shifted, quite aside from what's happening with the coronavirus. Kate, what would a world that is less globalised look like? You talk about shorter, more local supply chains, for example. Well, I think the first thing you notice is that goods would be much more expensive. I think a lot of customers who have become accustomed to be able to buy products very cheaply would see a serious impact from that. But, you know, a lot of this has to do with the development of technology going forward. We don't have the technology yet really to totally shorten supply chains. You know, I think at the moment, the the major change that may occur is that China in particular, which companies become addicted to in terms of being able to get cheap goods from and cheap parts from may not be that central hub that it once was going into the future. Apple is looking into getting up to a third of its investment out of China. Google is making its new Pixel smartphone in, in Vietnam. I mean, big companies are, are, are looking to move some of their investment out of China. But you could see a future where this doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. If 3D printing, for example, were to really come online, global supply chains, as we've come to know them, could cease to exist. So I don't want to necessarily fearmonger about it. But the reality is, especially in the light of something like coronavirus, when you realize how dependent you are on other parts of the world who may not treat public health issues in the same way that your country would, you do get nervous. That's a very normal reaction. And if you can't get those supplies in, you know, th- there's a real cost to that, not not just in terms of price, but also in terms of people being able to access basic goods and medicine. Mm. Gideon, how close do you think we are to that stage of shortening supply chain? and the technology and human organisation that is required to living a world like that? I think we're quite a long way from it, to be honest. You know, I'm not an expert on 3D printing, but the last time I saw it demonstrated on stage, it took like 45 minutes to produce a little plastic man. It didn't seem like we were really uh, very close to it. You know, it's interesting, Kate cites Apple and Google, but when she talked about Google, well, where are they going? They're not going back to the United States, they're going to Vietnam. So that's just... That's still globalization. It's just they're moving to a cheaper uh, production area and it's more diversified. But Apple's a really fascinating case because obviously it's, uh, I think it's it's the world's most valuable company. It's, you know, makes this iconic product, the iPhone. And people have been talking about, well, maybe you could repatriate some of it for quite a long time. There's a famous conversation where Obama actually asked Steve Jobs, mm. what would it take for you to produce the iPhone in America? And Steve Jobs basically said, forget it, it's not going to happen, because it's just, uh, you know, it would be unfeasibly expensive. And that provoked various economists to crunch the numbers. This was back in 2014. And at the time, they calculated an iPhone that would have cost, uh, at the time, cost around $700 in the US, if it were produced in the US, would cost $2,000. So suddenly, consumers who may be a bit upset about stagnant real wages or Mm. about the export of jobs would also find that things that they had taken for granted as everyday luxuries were were out of their reach. 3D printing might be a bit way off in the future, but what about other more traditional capital methods? So instead of using cheap Vietnamese labour, what about production lines that are automated? Is is that closer? Sure. Well, I mean, that's, I think, possibly a more... Well, I I don't know. As I say, I'm not an expert on 3D printing, but the other thing that people are really talking about, and Kate will have views on it as well, is simply robotics. Mm. And and that is the big threat, actually, is that rather than having these expensive production lines, or at least distant production lines on the other side of the world, relying on very cheap labour, but still quite labour intensive, 
uh, you replace them, but not with American or British workers, but with robots. And then you um, create cheaper goods, but mass unemployment yeah. doesn't, t doesn't go away. Now, economists will say, you know, technology, they've always been these fears about technology, and in the end, you actually do find different niches of the economy, people do find productive work, but it's not entirely clear what that work would be. I think that's such an important point because the irony here is that many people's frustrations with globalization actually come down to the fact that they like it so much. You know, the fact that they can't get their cheap products because supply chains might be at risk just goes to show how much it's massively improved people's lives, especially the consumer, especially those looking to buy cheaper goods. And Kate, you're a free marketeer, so don't you lament this, what it seems like would be a turning tide against globalization? Yeah, I wouldn't say the piece necessarily has a positive or, or happy angle to it. But look, I, I don't think by any means that this is the end of globalization. I think that people are just becoming much more aware of the questions that it's raised as, as, as much as the as much as the benefits. I mean, for a very long time, quite rightly, we've praised globalization for massively reducing absolute poverty, for life expectancy soaring. It really has made everyone richer. But we've in many ways taken for granted the benefits of globalization. And now the focus on well, where are the pitfalls. So this doesn't have to be completely negative. The next phase might not be scaling back globalization, but looking at ways in which we can improve things and, and, and return to what made us so wealthy in the first place. But the point now is that it's not Donald Trump that's looking at this. Mm. A lot of countries are looking at this. Attitudes are changing amongst their voter base. And the idea that globalization is just going to be the default and it's going to keep expanding or that we'll keep experiencing hyper-globalization, if you will, probably shouldn't be assumed. Gideon, how set are these attitudes against globalization, do you think? I mean, is it a case of getting Trump out of the White House, getting populist leaders across Europe out of their governments? Or do you think voters have changed and globalization globalization does have to change in order to satisfy those grievances? Well, I think there's definitely been a shift in rhetoric. And one of the things that Kate does in her article is show that the way in which the coronavirus plays into sort of supplements a number of other arguments that already appeared, some of them about the export of, of jobs and so on, some of them about migration. So this is, if you can see like a sort of panoply of arguments, this is yet another one saying, hang on, mm. this process is bringing in all sorts of unwanted things in its wake. And another one I would add is the increasing, I think possibly the most powerful one in a way because it's highest up in government, is the increasing American concern about national security, which you see with their efforts to ban Huawei from the American market, which is, you know, the breakthrough Chinese multinational, and their efforts obviously to put pressure on countries like Britain to do the same. And if America and China decouple on tech, given that so many industries are now at least partially tech industries that has enormous implications mm. for globalization so there are all these strains and coronavirus is the latest but i think that we're at a very early stage of testing whether it actually is feasible we can talk about it but are we prepared to live with the consequences can we actually unscramble globalization because uh you know trump is very focused on the trade deficit with china but Significant American companies are very dependent on the Chinese market. Qualcomm, you know, big chip maker, sells 60% of its chips to the United States. There was a year where Apple sold more iPhones in China than it did in the US. Kentucky Fried Chicken sell more chicken than in China than they do anywhere else. So even with that trade deficit, it's a crucial market for American companies. And a lot of American jobs are indirectly dependent on this. The same is true for Europe. If anything, the Germans are even more dependent on the, on the Chinese market. Mm. So 
I think what's happened is that we've had this political backlash you describe, and we've had politicians beginning to experiment with how much can you unscramble this omelette. But we don't really know yet. There's not been that much done. In a funny way, you could argue that Brexit is a miniature version of this and a slightly less drastic version of it, but also where, for political reasons, a political argument prevails and people say, well, you know what, we're not comfortable with this level of integration or, or the politics that you know, follows from this level of integration. We may have to do a bit of decoupling, and yet we're, we're going to see over the next year you know, who's right, how, how practical is that going to be. And if there were some meaningful level of deglobalization, it would probably almost certainly reveal that a lot of people's complaints about it aren't necessarily well placed. Mm. Automation was happening, you know, long before these concerns came to the forefront. Stagnant wages are, you know, I think much more linked to the recession that we've never properly recovered from than it is to the fact that, you know, China and India are, are somehow operating unfairly. So it's easy to blame globalization right now, which is why I do think it's under threat certainly in its current form. But that doesn't mean that the answer is to fully retreat from it, because I think that would only expose that many people's woes are misplaced to begin with. Mm. That's another argument about against globalization that I forgot, which of course was that it caused the global financial crisis, Mm. that the global financial system was too interlinked. And so you have this crisis in Wall Street that then goes global. So, I mean, it's not wrong that, that in a funny way, the financial crisis and coronavirus have something in common, which is that they show that something that starts in one side of the world can spread very rapidly and cause disruption around the rest of the world. But trying to remake the system might turn out to be even more disruptive. And of course, we haven't even mentioned climate change, which means that a whole new generation of people in the West, especially, are concerned about where they're getting their things from. Gideon and Kate, thanks very much. Next, in the midst of all this talk about the coronavirus, you'll be forgiven for forgetting that next week is Budget Day. It will be the new Chancellor Rishi Sunak's first budget and this government's first opportunity to demonstrate how it plans to set about levelling up the North. But, James Forsyth writes in this week's political column, the budget is likely to be a slimmed-down affair precisely because of the coronavirus. Katie Balls, our Deputy Political Editor, talks to James, and Sarah Longlands, Head of IPPR North, the branch of the IPPR think tank dedicated to development in the north of England, on the podcast now. James, in the politics column in this week's magazine, you write that there are many plans for the budget, but some have been put on hold thanks to the coronavirus. Yes, I mean, the coronavirus has created a huge amount of economic uncertainty. Uh, People in government quite freely admit that the economic effects of this virus at the moment are unknowable. We don't know how severe it is going to be. And for those reasons, I think the big decisions on fiscal policy are now going to get put off. Now, this isn't as dramatic as it sounds, because there is already due to be both a spending review and a budget this autumn. And I mean, it's essentially pushing that down the line. So I think the question now is, you know, we don't know whether the the coronavirus is going to end up pushing the economy into recession, for example, or not. So I I think for that reason, I think the, the big theme of this budget will be, A, how is the government going to respond to the coronavirus? And the kind of subsidiary theme will be about delivering on the Tories' manifesto promises. Because I think Downing Street is acutely sensitive to the trust issue. They want to take steps to say to people, look, we promised we would do this, and that is what we are doing. And James, just briefly, there have been lots of reports about balancing the regions about the level up agenda. I mean, there's been some reports that you could see Treasury officials move to Tees Valley. What is your sense in terms of how far the budget is going to go on the level up agenda? 
There'll be quite a lot of levelling up in there. I think that there will be Treasury officials moved up to Teesside. There will be changes to the Green Book to try and get more um, infrastructure uh, and more capital projects happening outside London and the South East. And I, I think there will be a, a big emphasis on infrastructure outside of London and South East. And I think, but I think look for connectivity within the regions as well as connectivity between the regions and London. Sarah, how do you feel about a budget along the lines of what James has just described when it comes to the level up plans? I I share a lot of what James has said and I think for me, if you, you forgive me for a moment, I think that one of the things we really want to see is uh, a cure to the virus that which has affected our political system for so long, which is centralisation. And we would like to see uh, a real step change in, in this budget and subsequently uh, in terms of a move away from centralising all the policymaking at, at Westminster and actually a move towards a proper and, and true form of, of devolution. Um, so we would really like to see this budget starting to deliver on, on, on that and the promises that Boris Johnson made last year at Rotherham, which said, you know, we, we're going to do devolution properly and we really want to see devolution done properly. So we'll be we'll be really looking closely to see whether whether this budget delivers on that. Uh, and I guess that means what uh, what James is saying in terms of uh, expenditure on infrastructure and changes to the Green Book, I think, are, are really important because at the minute it doesn't really take any account of social and economic need. And it also tends to prioritise spaces that are already doing well. So I think that that will be really welcome. We'd also be looking, I think, to see what's happening with the Shared Prosperity Fund, whether there's any news on that, because that's going to be really important for a lot of regions who've benefited previously from European structural funds. So uh, we'd be looking to see what, what, what the outcome might be from that. James, we're talking about a slimmed down budget here. Do you think that opens the government to criticism? That actually, for all the talk of an ambitious budget taking advantage of an 80-seat majority, or is coronavirus, if anything, a helpful cover for not being so bold? Uh, I, I don't think helpful might not be the right <laughs> word. Um, I think that, I, But there are some, I mean, before you suggest my questions that are unfair, there are some who say that actually given that the Chancellor only had a couple of weeks to write his yeah. budget, there's a sense that actually lower expectations because of something else, even if it brings challenges, c- could be quite helpful because you have to think about revenue. Uh, so, I'm not saying the coronavirus full stop is helpful. I was having a long discussion with someone in number 10 earlier today about how the coronavirus is affecting politics. And one of the things, it is essentially just shrinking the space. The political events have just, have, just, have just narrowed down because at the moment all the public want to hear about is how you're dealing with the coronavirus. I think the public would think it's slightly odd if, you, if a budget didn't address that question. I also think that you are right that I think that a lot of this a lot of these big questions about the future direction of fiscal policy for example having more time to work that out for a new chancellor isn't isn't necessarily a bad thing I also think there is another question about what is the effect on the economy of this now you know even if the immediate impact of this is akin to the impact of the uh, of the 2008 financial crisis I don't think it's going to have the kind of lasting impact that that did I think there will be a fair in the UK economy there will be a fairly quick rebound from it once once the coronavirus is kind of out of our system or, or has just become just another disease we've all developed a bit of immunity to it the trickier question for the government is how do you work out 
what support do you offer to businesses and individuals in terms of deferring their taxes and all this stuff? Because, you know, I think there is, you know, as you can see with the Fly B case today, you know, everyone is going to want to say that every business that runs into trouble will want to say that it is only running into trouble because of coronavirus. You know, there is a fascinating row going on right now with the insurance industry saying, how, hang on a second, you, you know, the government wants to make the coronavirus are what they call a notifiable disease, which means that, you know, it triggers various clauses in insurance contracts. Insurance companies are saying, well, why should we have to pick up all the costs of this virus? So I think there is going to be a lot of, I mean, there's a, there's a techie difficult job for the government about how to deal with that problem. And I think it's particularly compounded by the recent changes in the in the labour market over the last decade or so. You know, it is very easy when someone has a salary job, when they are entitled to sick pay, to say what should happen to them when they are sick. It is much more difficult, you know, to take the Uber driver, the delivery rider. You know, what 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 do you do for them when you want them to feel that they have enough of a safety net that they can self-isolate for two weeks if they think they are possibly carrying the disease but you know who is going to do that and then you move up the income scale you know is it the job of the state for example if there's a freelance plumber who was say earning a thousand pounds a week who decides that he has to stop working because he thinks he might have the virus you know should the state step in and pay his money i think so i think all of these difficult questions are things that are going to have to get resolved over the next um week or so and i think there's a, a general point there about you know, how politics can become more meaningful in terms of those types of questions, you know, coronavirus aside, that it's, it's you know, thinking about the, the realities of something like coronavirus for people on the ground and, and how they actually get to, to say how they feel it should be should be dealt with by, by a government. And I think at the minute that that's, that's part of the reason why we've seen such a shift in the sort of the sort of transformation of the political landscape in parts of the north, because we've seen people you know, feel that politics is no longer meaningful for them, that the political parties they used to, to um, support don't necessarily connect with them in the same way that perhaps they once did. Sarah, do you think one of the key things here is when government is looking at ways to keep their new voters in the Red Wall in the North and the Midlands, you mentioned that a lot of the voters who perhaps switched to the Tories became quite disillusioned with previous parties. I interviewed the Teesside Mayor Ben Houchen this week and he was talking about how sometimes the problem with some of these infrastructure projects is they're so far down the line that actually what the Tories need are things that will have noticeable change. So things that you will start to see the difference of at least uh, within four years. What type of projects do you think would achieve that or the government should be looking at? Yeah, well, I mean, like his um, manifesto pledge about the airport, I mean, that was uh, a really live local issue. It was really meaningful to people. Uh, and and now he's he's bought it and it's I mean it's kind of <laughs> to me a little bit ironic that the first thing a, a conservative mayor does is buy a, an asset and, and for the state but uh, but that aside um, I think what he did there was really clever because it was really meaningful to local people and now he's talking about bringing steel back to Teesside I have no idea how he's going to do that but again that is a really meaningful thing for people because because steel has been such a, a, a an important part of the kind of cultural identity in, in those communities. So I, I'm not suggesting that you know every conservative uh, mayor should go out there and start bringing back you know the, a lost industry necessarily. But I think trying to look at schemes which are meaningful in the short term to people, as well as having an eye on the on the bigger picture, is important. And I guess that starts with you know having good schools, reversing some of the the real impacts of austerity on people's neighbourhoods. You know, really simple things like the fact that. Um, a lot of local authorities don't have any money now to maintain and, and look after local parks uh, or local play areas that, 
that people might use. The fact that they, people have, find it perhaps difficult to access good local childcare. I think some of those kind of really day-to-day issues, uh, there's lots of stuff that some of those new Tory MPs can do to try and, and change that and try to make things better for people because ultimately that, that's what it's about. So those are some, and I think the, the challenge with those types of schemes is that they aren't infrastructure, they aren't capital money, they require revenue spend. And I think that's a question for the budget as to whether there's going to be a discussion about um, whether it's just all going to be capital money or whether there'll be any kind of... Uh, mention of, of revenue and, uh, and and sort of drawing back some from drawing back some of the funding that's been lost as a result of austerity. James, if we try and imagine a time uh, in the future when coronavirus isn't dominating the news, what do you think the long term projects or perhaps short terms if you talk about say short term is about four years, are that the government is going to want to embark on? So Although this is a discussion on the budget next week, we're also currently thinking about the autumn budget. Yeah, so I I think one of the things that they will want to do is they will want some infrastructure projects that will produce within the next four years. And that, that, frankly, the obvious things there are relatively small road projects that improve the quality. You know, one of the big challenges of this government is to link cities in the north up to towns in the north at speed. I think you're also going to see them reopening some of these railway lines that have been shut for years and attempt to kind of improve that. I was up in the West Midlands of Andy Street the other week when Parliament was in recess and I was quite struck there how the improvements in transport are making a big difference. You know, how quick it is to get from Sandwell now to, to the centre of Birmingham does make it feel different. And then I think the other the other big question is, you know, they are trying to foster this innovation-led economy, right? And I think the big thing that you've got to do, which is I was very struck by the point about steel, right, is there used to be a connection between what the industry was and place. And yes, that, 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 that made people proud of where they were. And I think one of the big, if the other big tar- target for this government, other than Brexit, is trying to hit net zero by 2050. And I think it's a really interesting question as to whether you can turn around and whether in four years' time you say, oh, yeah, yeah, Birmingham, that's where they produce the electric car batteries. That kind of sense of identity that comes from something being produced somewhere, and this isn't going to bring backery, this is about the future. I and mean, I think this is quite mm. an interesting thing, which is you know, if you look at this number 10 and number 11, they are, both Sunak and Johnson are greens, but they're both what I would call kind of tech greens rather than hair shirt greens. They're not, they're not of the view that oh, everyone's got to stop flying and eating meat if we're going to hit these targets. They're the view that technology and innovation is going to solve the problem. And if you can bring that technology and innovation can be centred around some of these places, then I think that could be quite transformative. That was Katie Bores, James Forsyth and Sarah Longlands. And finally, is it harder to be eco-friendly if you're a woman? This isn't one of those feminist arguments about everything being harder if you're a woman, but more of a look at the demands that being climate conscious makes on people these days. Let's face it, if you're going to be using beeswax wrapping instead of plastic wrapping, or reusable nappies instead of disposable ones, or for example driving less, it will too often be working mothers who have to bear the brunt of the extra time and money and resources that goes into these things. Laura Freeman argues that eco-friendly is not so woman-friendly in this week's issue, and she joins me now, together with Sean Sutherland, a mother, entrepreneur and plastics campaigner who founded the campaign group A Plastic Planet. 
Laura, you write in your piece this week about the ways in which being eco-friendly is not particularly woman-friendly. What do you mean about that? Well, I had this sort of eco-epiphany in January. I've been trying for some time to, to be a bit greener, to reduce and reuse and recycle and all those R's that we're supposed to be doing. And as my New Year's resolution, another R, I thought, well, let's intensify this. Let's really make an effort. No more buying at the supermarket. I'm going to go to the green grocer and I'm going to get an odd veg box and I'm not going to eat any meat and so on and so forth. And early January, I was scrubbing the mud off lumpy potatoes under cold water in the sink. <laughs> I just thought this is ridiculous. You know, I I have a degree, I have a career, and I'm making my life miserable and difficult and taking up huge amounts of time traipsing from shop to shop and refilling up, you know, Tupperware boxes or glass jars rather than just doing what I used to do, which was to get a big supermarket order from Waitrose and have it delivered to the door. And you point out how it's particularly a problem for mothers and working mothers. I think it's true that I think while the world is being told to behave better environmentally, it does fall, I think, to women largely who are you know, still mostly responsible, I think, for running households and packing lunch boxes and doing the food shop and cooking. And if you're saying to, to women, you must cook everything from scratch uh, and you must shop local and you can't do a cardo, actually, you know, you, you are you are putting extra pressures on them. Sean, you're, you're a mother yourself and a serial entrepreneur and a climate activist so how do you balance it all I love that description first I don't think I've ever been called a climate activist before um so that's really interesting because you know I always say I am the least likely eco warrior you'll ever meet you know yes you know I'm um, my background is business and I came to it very late and for me, I came to it absolutely through the, through the gateway of plastic, mm. of realising what we have done to the planet, what we continue to do to the planet. It's indefensible. It's undeniable. There's no plastic deniers out there. It's fixable. It's recent. It's tangible. And it's, it's my generation that's caused it. So, so for me, really, I, I came to, you know, I've, I've had a number of different careers and most latterly I ran a skincare brand. So you can imagine I'm no plastic saint myself. There are hundreds of thousands of unrecycled plastic bottles I have personally pumped out into the environment. I can't even tell you. But then I got involved in the launch of the film, A Plastic Ocean. And helping with the launch of that really was my epiphany. Almost the equivalent to your scrubbing dirty potatoes <laughs> of me of me realising what we'd done. And then I couldn't not use perhaps my business experience, my entrepreneurial experience, my marketing experience to see if we couldn't create a different kind of organisation mm. that could impact this problem. So much as I, I loved reading Laura's article and it really made me smile and, and it was, so many of those things resonated with me. So a couple of observations and first one is, I don't know if you know Mary Robinson. No, I don't. And Mary Robinson is really worth looking up because she was very involved in the Paris Agreement and she is very passionate. She was Premier of, of Ireland and she was, she's very passionate about climate justice. And she talks a lot about how whatever we do, however we change, we must leave no one behind. And she mm. very specifically talks about women. So much as in our wonderful bubble of privilege in the West, where we may feel a little bit knocked at the extra le level of responsibility that we're feeling, actually the people that are going to be most impacted by climate crisis and all of these things are probably going to be women in developing countries. And actually they're the ones who have the right to feel really angry about this because they have not caused the problem. It's us that's caused the problem. 
Well, I wanted just, just to say something about sort of affluence, because I think one of my concerns about some of the ways we're being encouraged to, to use different sorts of products is I think most of these things are more expensive than the plastic equivalent. So if I go to my nice zero waste store, I am charged more for the kind of planet organic whole foods type refill than I would if I just bought it in a plastic bag from Tesco. And every shampoo and every conditioner and every laundry liquid that are eco and, and refillable, they are more expensive. And if I were a mother of two if I were a single mother of two children on a budget watching every penny mm. I'm not going to buy my apples loose at Waitrose when I could buy them cheaper in a bag and I, I do think it's a problem that basically it becomes something that, that middle class affluent educated women can supposedly do but women who don't have spare cash are effectively penalised. I completely agree. I completely agree. And you go back to things like, let's look at the, the rise of the organic movement and the fact that obviously buying organic at the beginning was so much more expensive than buying non-organic. And it was almost like, let the poor people have the pesticides. You know, the rich people can have the clean produce. So, Im so immoral. And we have to be very aware and careful that having that right to buy plastic-free, now we know what we know, we don't want that guilt of taking all that packaging home, putting it in the recycling bin, knowing that barely 9% of it is going to get recycled in this country. We don't want that guilt anymore. And we have to make sure that this is not about privilege or affordability. And in our experience at A Plastic Planet, obviously we, two years ago, we launched the first plastic-free aisle in a Dutch supermarket. So we've worked with supermarkets throughout Europe for three years now. And what really encourages me is that it is the affordable supermarkets that are making the change. So you look at Iceland Foods, you look at places like the Co-op. Uh, we did a big project at Thornton Budgeons and just coming to your point about zero waste. And if you go to those, you know, zero packaging stores, why should it cost more money? So when I see some of the trials that some of the big supermarkets do and they say, oh, wait, we're taking all the packaging off the fresh produce aisle to do a test. And then I see in the same store of that test, they're selling plastic wrapped bags of the same produce cheaper mm. I mean that's just setting yourself up to fail I have no idea what kind of trial that is yeah so Laura in your piece I mean reading it I mean it's a wonderful lovely piece but it makes me quite anxious as well because your anxiety about the environment is bleeding through so do you think you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself because you know as consumers we think it's an individual choice that we can make a difference but actually what about the supermarkets what about the market system what about governments and what about the industry well I have to say all the sort of the planet is burning in capital letters stuff you know has has got to me a bit I do think that that sort of playing on consumers guilt is really objectionable because absolutely I think other people should be doing more and like Sean I feel you know the amount that you have to throw away you know when you unpack a supermarket shop and I don't understand why a banana which has a perfectly good skin is in a bag you know I just don't understand how we've got to this point over so many years I don't know I think that this guilt problem is is huge and I'm 32 I'm at the age where you know a friend is having a, a baby every week and there seems to be this new pressure on new mothers not to use disposable nappies um, and not to use formula milk because both are bad for the environment and I do think that you know asking mothers to go back to washing out nappies and saying that you can't switch to formula milk you know when you need to say go back to the office after six months I don't think that's very enlightened or, or working woman friendly and I know people who are put off by the demands of that and to not do anything at all rather than just meet people halfway mm. so I completely agree with Laura this should not be her problem 
for me, I look at this as, you know, let's take plastic. Plastic, for me, is not a pollution problem. It's not a shopper problem. It's not, it's not a consumer problem. It's a production problem. You know, I look at it almost like a, like a burger, where the top of the burger bun is government. So if you look at where is, who are the change agents in this burger, the top of the bun is government. And absolutely, we need new laws. We need policy change. We need taxation. At the bottom of that bun, you've got the soggy bit. You've got the consumer who's completely disempowered. We buy what we are sold. So when you're talking about all of these things of, you know, what, why, is it my, why is it my responsibility? I totally agree with you. And the, the whole transference of guilt from the people that decided to put something in a particular bit of packaging made of a particular material to you because you happened to buy it in that. I didn't buy. I mean, I'm looking at this, this pint of milk here. I bought the milk. I didn't buy the plastic mm. milk jug that I know is very unlikely to get recycled in any way. But the middle of the bun is the bit that we're interested in, and that juicy, probably meat-free burger bit now, <laughs> definitely not beef, that bit is industry. Mm. And that's where the change has to happen. And I absolutely believe this is not the shopper's problem. We need to sell something different. And that comes from industry. Can I say one PS? And I say this partly because I hope a supermarket will pick it up. But I have a tiny bit of nudge behavioural insight that I think might help in reducing plastic bag consumption. I think at checkouts, instead of the cashier saying, do you need a plastic bag? They should say, have you brought your own bag? Because I think the satisfaction that customers would have in saying, <laughs> yes, I have brought my own bag I think would be a really good incentive well Sainsbury's Tesco if you're listening there's a tip for you thanks Laura and Sean and that's it for this week to read all of the articles discussed in the podcast this week as well as more from Anthony Horowitz on children's literature Nick Robinson's coronavirus scare and Lionel Shriver on being cancelled by her friend just pick up an issue of this week's spectator and if you don't have a subscription to The Spectator, remember you can get one at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher for just £12. And for that price, you get 12 issues of The Spectator, as well as full access to our website and a free £20 Amazon voucher. So what are you waiting for? Thanks for listening and join us again next week. 